2205 hours, 48 years ago, Charles Lindbergh landed the Voyager on completion of his solo flight from New York. He died on the 26th of August, 1974. This is therefore the first anniversary of his flight since he died. Now, soon after Lindbergh died, John Grierson, our lecturer tonight, wrote to the United States Ambassador in Paris, suggesting the Lindbergh Memorial Service should be held in that city under the sponsorship of the FAI and the Aero Club de France. He ultimately had a reply from the ambassador to say that the ambassador had been recalled to the United States but wish him the best of good fortune for memorial service. As a result, John Grierson then turned to this country and asked for help Sir Peter Macefield to support a memorial service in Paris. But Sir Peter's inquiries in British circles evinced some reluctance to support such a service in Paris because of economic and other difficulties in getting there. He therefore wrote to my predecessor, as president of the society, proposing a special memorial lecture and suggesting John Grierson as a lecturer. This proposal was warmly endorsed by the Council and, and invitations to be associated with the event were issued to the Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators and to the Royal Aero Club who are associated with this evening. It is a great disappointment to us that Mrs. Anne Maura Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh's widow, was unable to accept our invitation to be with us on this rather unique occasion. But I'm happy to say that the family is represented here tonight by her daughter, Madam Anne Fady, Anne Lindbergh Fady, who, with her husband, Sir Julian Fady, have come across from Paris to be with us. I'm sure you would like to join me in wishing her a very warm welcome tonight. It is a pleasure, too, to welcome representatives from the United States and the French embassies and from our associates, the Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators and the Royal Air Club. Now a word or two about our lecturer. John Grierson learned to fly at the Royal Air Force College at Cranwell and was commissioned in 1930. He flew him off to India to join his squadron and returned in what was then a record time for light aeroplanes of four days, ten hours and fifty minutes. He tells me tonight that as a result of this, which he did without permission, he was asked to resign his commission for Royal Air Force. <laughs> he came second in the Morning Post race of 1932, and in the same year made a round trip to Samarkand. In 1933, he was involved in wireless experimental flights across the North Atlantic. In 1934, he went on a round Europe flight, and in the same year made the first London to Ottawa flight in a Fox Moss seaplane called Robert Bruce. This flight included the first solo crossing of the Greenland ice cap. He spent the next seven years as a test pilot, three of which were involved in jet development testing of Gloucester aircraft. Immediately after the war, he went to the Antarctic in a whaling factory ship Bellina in charge of whaling fleet's aircraft. Then followed two years in the Director of Civil Aviation in the British Zone of Germany, after which he joined the de Havilland Engine Company in 1950 becoming in turn Technical Sales Executive and Superintendent of Flight Development. In 1962, he transferred to the Havilland Aircraft, subsequently Hawker City Aviation Hatfield, as Sales Manager for Executive Aircraft, and he retired from that appointment in 1964. He has published several books on aviation, mostly concerned with flying in the Arctic and in the Antarctic, and he's a Fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. 
John Grierson first met the Lindbergs in Reykjavik in 1933, when he was also making an Arctic survey flight. Lindbergh wrote a forward to John Grierson's book, The History of Polar Aviation. And later on, in writing to John Grierson about the proposed BBC documentary film on ocean flying, Lindbergh wrote, I do not know anyone I would rather have cover my part than yourself. So you can see, ladies and gentlemen, that John Grierson is well qualified to talk to us tonight. It is with great pleasure that I invite him to give us the Lindbergh Memorial Lecture. Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, I feel singularly honored to have been asked to render homage to the memory of Charles Augustus Lindbergh, whose flight to Paris on this very day in 927 made such a worldwide impact on aviation that his name will be remembered long after most of his famous contemporaries are dead and rotten and forgotten. Lindbergh was of Swedish descent, born at Detroit on February the 4th, 1902, and his father was a lawyer who was elected to Congress. They lived at Little Falls, Minnesota, and as a child, Charles must have been unusually responsible, because at the age of six, he was given a 2-2 rifle by his grandfather, and at 11 was taught to drive a Ford by his father, and never had an accident with gun or car. He disliked all his schools, ending up at the University of Wisconsin, where he gave up engineering to go flying in 1922. He started as a wing-walker, exhibition parachutist, and barnstormer, graduating through military cadetship to become a night airmail pilot. Lindbergh's parachute saved his life firstly from a military air collision, and the second time when he was testing a civil prototype, which refused to come out of a spin. You can see how, having bailed out at 350 feet, he was nearly hit by the aeroplane, after which he landed heavily in a strong wind and dislocated his shoulder. He made two more emergency jumps, both from mail planes at night, in extreme weather. During one moonlight flight, he conceived the idea of demonstrating how an aeroplane could connect the new world to the old. With the backing of Aits and Louis businessmen, he ordered a special Ryan monoplane, with the pilot sitting behind an enormous tank and having no forward view. It was powered by a right whirlwind J5C nine-cylinder radial of 220 horsepower, which had a great reputation for reliability. Lindbergh planned the flight meticulously in every detail. Radio was out on account of weight and unreliability, and so was the use of a sextant, because he thought it would be impossible to hold an absolutely steady course and take sight simultaneously. Here is the cockpit of the Iran monoplane. On the left, out of sight, are the throttle and a small lever controlling carburetor hot air, also a fuel wobble pump. Just visible is the tail trimmer operating on a bungee principle, and under the dashboard is a conglomeration of 14 cocks to control the fuel system of five tanks, while below that is the starter magneto. On the panel itself is the mixture control, ignition switch, oil pressure gauge, fuel pressure gauge, oil thermometer, dash light switch, rev counter, periscope with retracting lever, dash lights, a mirror from a woman's handbag originally stuck on with chewing gum for reading the compass in the roof, indicator for earth inductor compass, turn and bank indicator, lateral and fore and aft inclinometers, airspeed indicator, altimeter, clock and deviation card, while out of sight on the right-hand side are the earth inductor compass itself and a stowed drift indicator which was never used. Limited sideway view was obtained through windows from which Lindbergh had the panels removed throughout the Atlantic flight in order to keep himself awake, but the periscope couldn't be used for taxiing, takeoff, or landing. 
There's also out of sight in the centre a copper funnel for draining the fuel filter periodically. Neither cockpit heating nor oxygen supply were installed. For navigation, Lindbergh would rely entirely on dead reckoning and hoped to be able to obtain sufficient sightings of the ocean in order to calculate wind speed and direction from the waves. On his 3,614-mile flight, a tailwind was expected to give him an average of at least 100 miles an hour, so that 450 U.S. gallons tankage for 4,210 4, miles in still air should provide an adequate margin. You see, his course from New York is divided into three main stages. 1137 miles to St. John's, 1887 miles from there to Ireland, and a final 600 miles to Paris. Each is subdivided into 100-mile sectors, and he planned to alter course every hour to take into account the Great Circle track and changes of variation. Lindbergh concluded all tests at San Diego in early May 1927 and flew his machine, the Spirit, to Curtis Field, New York. On May the 19th, the weather prospects were grim and decided him to cancel for next day. But in the evening, there was an unexpected improvement. He therefore reversed his previous plans and proposed a dawn takeoff. Having had a sleepless night, Lindbergh ordered his aircraft to be towed to Roosevelt Field, where Bird had given him permission to use his 5,000-foot runway. The ground was soggy, the clouds low, and fine rain was falling as the final fueling was done. Lindbergh knew full well that failure to take off would almost certainly mean death in a blazing inferno. In pilot's jargon, the takeoff was likely to be of the kind you time with a tear-off calendar rather than an expensive stopwatch. The following film, leading up to the struggle to get off, unfortunately omits the first hundred yards or more, which must have taken well over a minute to cover. But when Lindbergh had waved the chocks away and opened up to full throttle, the airplane hardly moved due to the mud and the overload. Spectators therefore ran forward and heaved on his struts until the spirit of St. Louis was going faster than they could run. And it was some time after that that their takeoff run on this film began. There he goes, clearing the telephone wires by a bare twenty feet. Lindbergh had triumphed over the first and one of the greatest ordeals of his flight as he made his way above Long Island at two hundred feet. Presently, the rain stopped, the mist and clouds eased, and a tailwind was blowing. Thus, fortune smiled radiantly on the start of this historic flight. Here, by courtesy of the Smithsonian Institution, is the synoptic chart on which Lindbergh based his decision to take off on May the 19th, although his comments were not added until December. In the absence of weather ships, the forecasters had to use inspired guesses for much of their oceanic coverage and it's not surprising that the influence of the two lows over Greenland and Iceland impinged more onto Lindbergh's route than expected, giving him predominantly bad weather over the Atlantic. As he passed Cape Cod, he set out on the first sea crossing of his life to Nova Scotia, 250 miles away. Flying at between 20 and 100 feet above the waves, he hoped thereby to obtain an advantage by keeping in the boundary layer. After only three hours, he began to feel cramped and tired and had his first sip of water. In the fifth hour, he hit land barely six miles off course. So far, the weather had been good, but soon dark clouds appeared ahead as sudden gusts buffeted the spirit of St. Louis. In his still overloaded state, Lindbergh worried about the flexing of the wings and how long they would stand up to this violent treatment. He reduced speed as the turbulence built up and squall after squall struck, 
while lightning lit up the trees and rocks below. For nearly an hour the storm raged until two hours later, as he cleared Cape Breton for, New Breton for Newfoundland, the sun was shining brilliantly. Over the Atlantic again he found the urge to sleep almost overwhelming. My eyes feel hard and dry as stone, he wrote. If I could throw myself down on a bed, I'd be asleep in an instant. Then, after shaking his head and body roughly, flexing the muscles of his arms and legs, and stamping his feet on the floorboards, he went on, The worst part about fighting sleep is that the harder you fight, the more you strengthen your enemy, and the more you weaken your resistance to him. Paris was still 2,800 miles away, and he had a whole night to fly through. A sudden change in the ocean from open water to a dazzling ice field hit Lindbergh like a bucket of cold water, a fascinating stimulant, which, added to the instability of his aeroplane, helped to keep him awake. Besides, he had to exercise his mind by periodically checking his navigation, taking instrument readings, and realigning his fuel tanks as necessary at hourly intervals. He reached New St. John's at the very spot where, almost eight years ago, Alcock and Whitten Brown had taken off on the first direct Atlantic flight from a field only 400 yards long. Lindbergh made one straight dive over the town so that his passing would be recorded as the start of the most dangerous part of his flight. A sense of exhilaration filled the lone flowers. He pointed the spirit of St. Louis out over the mighty Atlantic, heading into the gathering dusk. In the waves he gauged the wind at thirty knots on his tail, and in the fading light scattered icebergs presented themselves as eerie monsters, glistening in their dazzling whiteness. Fog lay low on the water, and at first the icebergs showed through, but the murk built up into a solid mass, so that Lindbergh had to climb to keep above it, until after two hours he was at 9,300 feet. Mounting clouds ahead foretold another storm and Lindbergh wondered if he could thread his way through the high valleys of turbulent cumulus. As he gazed at the myriad stars all round, his mind turned to religion, to the infinite magnitude of the universe, and the utter insignificance of man. He decided to fly blind through all the all-embracing clouds, but as he flashed his torch he saw ice beginning to form on struts and wings, forcing him to turn about. He came out of one cloud pillar and started to weave his path between others, but it was difficult to see their exact shape due to the haze which made them seem to merge into each other. New York lay fourteen hours behind, yet he felt so worried about how he could get through such an array of ice-forming clouds, he seriously thought of turning back. This was more than he could bear, to, so he determined to carry on, seeking every possible opening in the multitude of towering peaks. Miraculously, ice-coating on the wings began to diminish, although he'd lost no height but his two compasses were behaving oddly, making him think he was in a magnetic storm. In the midst of all these worries, he started to feel again the irresistible urge to sleep. Luckily, the moon was edging up and provided a distraction, though far ahead it, was revealed, it, it revealed a higher cloud formation, which seemed to block completely the way east, and once again the question of turning back throbbed through Lindbergh's mind, and once more he rejected it. Navigation had suffered from all the alterations of course through the cloudiness and from the peculiar behavior of the compasses, and on top of it, <coughs> Lindbergh knew he'd been 90 miles south of the Great Circle in order to clock in at St. John's. His drowsiness was affecting his usual aim for perfection, and he felt it would be enough to hit Europe anywhere. As he diverted the slipstream onto his face, he wrote, I let my eyelids fall shut for five seconds, then raise them against tons of weight, 
protesting they won't open wide until I force them with my thumb and lift the muscles of my forehead to keep, help keep them in place. The spirit of St. Louis refuses to be left unattended for five seconds. Such was her instability. Suddenly the lights of a ship seemed to appear, suggesting that the belt of sea fog had broken. But then the lights continued to rise, and Lindbergh realized it was stars he was looking at as he dropped his right wing. After this, things began to improve. The compasses became steadier, the haze had gone, as had the wing ice, and the clouds were dispersing. Even so, having flown for over five hours out of sight of the surface, Lindbergh was agitated about where the upper winds might have carried him. My body, he wrote, requires no attention. It's not hungry, it's neither warm nor cold. Six hours out from St. John's brought the dawn, and he wrote, The uncontrollable desire to sleep falls over me in quilted layers. This is the hour I've been dreading, the hour against which I've tried to steel myself. I know it's the beginning of my greatest test, the third morning since I slept. The aircraft had gone ten degrees off course, and Lindbergh bounced himself up and down as he rudders his machine back onto the right heading, and almost immediately it went off again. And trying to shake himself into wakefulness, he kept reciting, There's no alternative but death and failure, no alternative but death and failure. As full daylight came, the urge to sleep lessened slightly, and he was able to keep a better course, refreshed by a sip of water. At the beginning of his twenty-first hour since New York, Lindbergh made his last serious effort at keeping the log, and then began to descend, since he had been unable to see the waves for a wind check for over seven hours. With no knowledge of any change in the barometric pressure, he couldn't rely on his altimeter reading as he went down, so he decided to limit his descent to a thousand feet indicated on gently lowering himself, sometimes in the clouds, sometimes breaking into a valley for a few moments. Then suddenly, at 8,000 feet, he saw a deep funnel between pillars of cloud, with a heavy sea running on the ocean at the bottom. Anxious not to lose contact, he forced the spirit of St. Louis down until she was diving at 140 miles an hour with engine throttle back. He had to spiral around the funnel so as not to lose it, descending at such a rate that his ears began to pop. At 2,000 feet he was under the lowest cloud layer, having lost his sense of direction, but when he had regained his course he saw that he had a quartering tailwind from northwest, which must have been driving him ahead, but also south of course. Now he went down to 50 feet above the huge breaking waves and reckoned that the wind speed was up to 60 miles an hour, for the spray was being blown off the white caps like rain. He didn't fancy his chances of a forced landing in such a sea, dinghy or no dinghy. The greatest worry was what had his past errors been in navigation when he had to alter course, had had to alter course so often to avoid the weather, and had no idea where the wind was carrying him from hour to hour. After nearly an hour, the, the nose went down without warning, and one wing dropped as he dived towards the waves. Lindbergh had, in his own words, been asleep with open eyes. Quickly coming to his senses, he applied stick and rudder, intending to correct the dive and get back into a level flight. But the turn indicator pointer went hard to port, and the airspeed dropped, indicating a steep climbing turn away from where he'd just been diving, where he was beginning to lose control. The impact of this knowledge acted like an electric shock, and then he started to set the instruments into place, slowly and deliberately. He did regain a level course, though he felt as if flying in a dream, and his conscious mind had ceased to work. 
Without warning, the fog broke, and the sea appeared momentarily with another curtain of mist ahead. Trying to get under it, Lindbergh dived right down to within five feet of the waves, and finding himself still in fog, climbed up to a thousand feet. But in a few minutes, breaks started to open up, accompanied by rain. Before a real clearance had arrived, he became aware of ghostly presences in his fuselage, as though a host of vaguely outlined forms with friendly human voices had come aboard. This extraordinary phenomenon didn't seem to worry him, though he confessed, I'm on the borderline of life and a greater realm beyond, as though caught in the field of gravitation between two planets, acted on by forces I cannot control. Death no longer seems the final end it used to be, but rather the entrance to a new and free existence, which includes all space, all time. Not until the end of the 21st hour was the main storm area passed, though the fringe effects lasted another half hour, when Lindbergh was faced with a new kind of phenomenon, a coastline with hills and clumps of trees in the mid-Atlantic. This made him wonder whether he was fast asleep or had flown north to Greenland or become completely disoriented. How could there be land in mid-Atlantic? An island lay straight across his course, but just as he reached it, the shades of grey and white and purple disappeared. The mirage was over, and now the horizon became bright and sharp. He wrote, I am capable only of holding my plane aloft and laxly pointed towards a heading I set some hours ago. No extra energy remains. I am as strengthless as the vapour limbs of the spirits to whom I listen. He even struck his face sharply with his fist a couple of times, as hard as he could, and felt no pain to stimulate his body. How on earth could he keep himself awake? The alternative is death and failure, death and failure, he muttered. And for the first time ever, Lindbergh doubted his ability to endure. He tried every kind of exercise possible in the cockpit, and turned his face into the slipstream in a final effort to stay awake. Gradually, somehow, his strength came back. I've been hanging over the chasm of eternity, holding on to the ledge with my fingertips. But now I'm gaining strength. I'm crawling upward. Consciousness is coming back. And so he began his twenty-fifth hour. On considering all possible errors due to course alterations, weather and wind factors, he concluded that his maximum possible displacement would be either 440 miles south, which would put him on the Bisky coast after dark, or 425 miles north, which would make him hit the Hebrides. At the beginning of the 27th hour, he thought he saw a large fish, perhaps a porpoise, break the surface of the sea, and that revived him with a new interest. He realized that he was constantly rudding the aeroplane to the left, because instinctively he believed he was south of course, but felt relieved as the wind decreased and only cumulus clouds lay scattered ahead with line squalls in the distance. Suddenly a black speck caught Lindbergh's eye, and excitedly he realized that it was a small boat, such as would be used for coastal fishing. Then he saw several others, and decided to fly around for a closer look. There was no sign of life on the first, but on the second a man's head was framed in a porthole, though quite motionless. Sweeping past into a turn, Lindbergh came back low alongside, closed his throttle, and shouted at the top of his voice, "'Which way is Ireland?' but on his return there was not the slightest response, so he gave it up as a bad job, not wanting to waste any more flying time. At the turn of the 28th hour, he was flying at a 100 feet and scanning the horizon ever more hopefully through breaks in the squalls. He, on, he was only half believing when on the far horizon between two squalls he saw a purplish-blue band hardened in the haze. 
Having previously been so misled by a mirage, he was not going to be easily taken in again. Responding to the temptation, he turned sharply towards the nearest point of what he thought was land, and hardly able to believe his eyes, picked out a coast with rugged shores and rolling mountains beyond, unfold before his eyes. Yes, it really was land. Here was a fjorded coast with the barren Skellig Isles, and from 2,000 feet he could discern an outline which placed him without doubt at Valencia Island in Dingle Bay on Ireland's west coast, barely three miles from his intended landfall. What a relief, and what a magnificent achievement! In acknowledging the wonders of white foam on black rocks, of curving hills, the hospitality of little houses, and the welcome of waving arms, Lindbergh wrote, During my entire life I have accepted these gifts of God to man, and not known what was mine until this moment. It's like rain after drought, spring after northern winter. I've been to eternity and back. I know how the dead would feel to live again. Now it seems so utterly easy to go on to Paris and land in the dark in six hours' time, so long as the weather held. After concentrating on the charts and his onward route, Lindbergh was amazed to look out and see nothing but ocean ahead, until he realized that in his excitement he had turned the machine completely round. He soon put that right, and delighted in flying low over the Irish farmland with its small houses and grazing sheep. Gone was the wish to sleep, and a new surge of vigor filled his being. All the strain of the ocean had vanished, and now the weather, too, was improving. From the corner of Ireland he struck out across St. George's Channel, where a sudden change in engine rate was followed by a dead cut. However, Lindbergh realized almost at once that the cause was fuel starvation, and changed over to the center wing tank. This action, accompanied by some vigorous jabs of the wobble pump, brought the whirlwind back to life with a loss of a few hundred feet. Three hours out from Valencia he traversed Cornwall, just south of Plymouth, where the Mayflower and so many of his compatriots had originated. Thence over a little more water to cross the eastern corner of the Cap de la Hague, he flew to Deauville, where he struck the main French coast in the afterglow of sunset. This was the moment Lindbergh chose for his first meal, consisting of a single very unfresh meat sandwich, which he described as tasting rather flat. Bread and meat never touched my tongue like this before, he wrote. From 2,000 feet, the Seine was easily picked out, and Lindbergh climbed to 4,000 feet in order to be sure of seeing the glow of Paris. It started as a barely perceptible glimmer, building up within half an hour to the full majesty of the French capital, and there for positive identification was the Eiffel Tower. He'd been told that Le Bourget was northeast of the city centre, but was not sure how far out, and so headed that way, searching vainly for a locator beacon. It was a black patch, rather <coughs> large enough for an aer aerodrome, but the lights around resembled factory buildings. After flying five minutes beyond, and seeing nothing else that looked likely, he returned and spotted a concrete apron with aeroplanes on it. As a precaution, he circled several times to lose altitude, and made a dummy run. On slowing down, how strange the controls of the Spirit of St. Louis felt. He, he realized... He must avoid stalling at all costs, but his movements seemed strangely uncoordinated. For the final run, he came in fast, aiming just short of some floodlights, but overshooting them considerably, and sensing that he was about to stall in spite of his speed, and that there was plenty of feel left in the controls. He bounced once by the lights, then again as the spirit of St. Louis was enveloped in darkness. 
How he finished up without coming to any harm, exhausted as he was on this the first night landing, he ever made in such a blind aeroplane at a strange aerodrome, was nothing short of a miracle. Then, on turning to taxi in, he found himself face to face with a seething mass of Parisians running to welcome him. Terrific receptions, including those by prime ministers and royalty, were accorded to him in Paris, Brussels, and London, where the Croydon crowd was even less controlled than the one at Le Bourget. On behalf of the Royal Aero Club and this learned society, he was entertained by Lord Thompson, the Air Minister, the dinner at the Savoy, and made an excellent speech. All kinds of honours from every corner of the earth were heaped on Lindbergh, including the Congressional Medal of Honour, equivalent to the V.C., and many gold trophies such as gold keys for both the city of Paris and the city of London. Here is a film showing the sort of ecstatic receptions Lindbergh received, in addition to those in Paris and Brussels. Why was this solo flight such an astonishing success? Above all, Lindbergh had demonstrated to the world the impact of the aeroplane's range on trans-ocean communications. By flying 3,614 miles from New York to Paris in 33 hours, 30 minutes, 29.8 seconds, FAI official time, at an average speed of 107.9 miles per hour and breaking the world's long-distance record. Moreover, he reckoned he had enough fuel left for another 1,040 miles when he landed. On Lindbergh's own admission, there had been periods when he neglected his navigation and made many uncontrolled course changes. Was it pure luck that he succeeded in achieving such a marvellous landfall, or did the latent homing instinct of man operate unconsciously at moments of highest tension and greatest need? For instance, the best landfall I've ever made was on reaching Iceland after flying 360 miles in five and a half hours from the Faroes. Without a forecast, I'd been through the centers of two depressions in pouring rain with mountainous seas below, and my engine running intermittently on three cylinders. I didn't really expect to reach land before it failed altogether. My navigation was forgotten, and I was absolutely scared stiff. Yet somehow I hit the Iceland within half a mile of my aiming point. This was a very minor achievement compared with Lindbergh's, but the elements of high tension and great need were not dissimilar. After the greatest ovation ever given in the history of man in Washington, Lindbergh had one week of celebrations in New York, thence proceeding to St. Louis to thank his backers. He saw himself not so much a pioneer as a torchbearer, bringing the message of aviation to the people of America. In fact, his epoch-making flight acted like a catalyst on world opinion and inspired a great surge of optimism in support of developing civil aircraft and civil airlines everywhere. President Calles of Mexico invited Lindbergh to make an official visit, and he responded in December the on December the 13th by flying non-stop through the night to reach Mexico City in 27 and a quarter hours, having been lost for over three hours due to fog and the difficulties of using school atlas maps. The U.S. ambassador in Mexico was Dwight Morrow, whose family was directly responsible for the number of return flights Lindbergh subsequently made to Mexico because he had noticed an unusually attractive daughter belonging to the ambassador. From Mexico, he continued on a 9,000-mile tour before delivering the spirit of St. Louis to the Smithsonian Institution on April 30, 1928. 
On February the 12th, 1929, the Morrows proudly announced the engagement of their daughter Anne to Charles Lindbergh, and they were married on May the 17th, 1929, at Next Day Hill, Englewood. In his wartime memoirs of 1970, Charles referred to this as the wisest thing I ever did. Here they are shortly after their marriage. Believing that the future of aviation must lie with rocket propulsion, Lindbergh had become very interested in the work of the physicist R.H. Goddard, who was then experimenting with elementary rockets and obtained financial assistance for him from his millionaire friend, Harry Guggenheim. On June 22, 1930, Charles Augustus was born under what amounted to almost siege conditions by the press, who considered everything the Lindbergh did and every detail of their private lives matters of public interest. Moreover, they were pestered by the public whenever they appeared in a shop, restaurant, or theater. Early in 1931, Lindbergh decided to explore an air route for Pan American to China and Japan via Alaska and Russia. Because of the absence of landing fields, this meant that he would have to fit floats or pontoons to their elegant and efficient Lockheed Sirius, with which he and Anne had broken the transcontinental record and face all the extra difficulties of seaplane operation. For instance, not only does the en route weather have to be suitable, but the surface conditions regarding roughness, smoothness, or obstruction by ice and tidal conditions have to be favorable at both ends at the precise moments of departure and arrival. On the water, there is frequent danger of curious boatmen who tend to ram strange aeroplanes in the floats, wings, or fuselage. Launching and recovery by an aircraft carrier can be disastrous if wind and current are adverse, and so on. These are just some of the extra worries the seaplane pilot may have on his mind. The Lindbergh set off on July the 30th, 1931, Anne having qualified as a radio operator, as well as taking a pilot's license and studied astro-navigation with Harold Gatty. And it was her aim to maintain radio contact in the sparsely inhabited regions of their route. Having had no darkness since Baker Lake, Lindbergh was surprised when night began to fall en route to Nome, with the result that a combination of fog and lack of fuel forced him to land downwind in a lagoon in the half light. He found himself in three feet of water and was lucky to have got down all right. I once pulled his leg about this incident as being more appropriate to an inexperienced club flower than, than an aviator of his wide background but he firmly maintained that it was all in keeping with his desire to try out his emergency equipment for an overnight stop. Although he did add, I probably wouldn't have taken off if I'd known that we wouldn't have made known before dark. In China, widespread areas had been devastated by floods, and the Lindberghs flew relief missions both from Nanking and Hankow. Absence of a lake at the latter forced them to use the Yangtze as a landing place and they were given assistance by the British aircraft carrier Hermes. During the second launch, however, the wind swung the seaplane at right angles to the ship, and the current dug a wing under the water. Both aircrew were forced to jump, and fortunately were rescued by the safety launch. A very good account of this 10,000-mile flight was rendered by Anne in North to the Orient. In February 1932, the Lindberghs moved into a new house in the open countryside at Hopewell, where they had barely settled when the greatest tragedy of their lives struck on March the 1st, with the discovery of the empty cot by Anne. The kidnapping was rendered so much more terrible through all the publicity given to the name of Lindbergh, 
and the agony of two and a half months' suspense before the child's body was found. Hauptmann, the murderer, was not brought to justice for over four years. On August 16, 1932, Anne gave birth to her second son, and soon after this, Charles started to plan for next year a survey flight embracing the Arctic, the North Atlantic, Europe, and South Atlantic to be made in the Sirius, which would help him and Anne to break away from the atmosphere at home. The flight was being sponsored by Pan American Airways, who provided a base ship as far as Copenhagen. In 1933, after landing at Reykjavik in a de Havilland Gypsy Moth seaplane while attempting to fly the Arctic route from east to west, I heard that the Lindberghs had done extensive flying over Greenland and were, were expected in Iceland soon, and therefore cabled to Lindberg in Angmagsilik, offering to give any assistance I could in meeting his seaplane if he would stay when he was coming. Having received no reply, I was working on my machine when the hour for the official Lindbergh reception by the harbour came. But the sea was too rough to land there, and the Sirius, now renamed in Greenland Tingmissartok, came down near my hangar. So I ran out, commandeered a ferry boat, and went over and took the seaplane to a mooring. And thus I had the pleasure of my first meeting with Charles and Anne on August the 15th, 1933. He very kindly presented me with the specially tinted goggles he'd used for flying across the Greenland ice cap for my attempt. When, on August the 20th, I had tried to take off for Greenland in a rough sea and capsized my machine, I came into the hotel to tell my tale of woe at breakfast and found Lindbergh most sympathetic and understanding. Now, in turn, he helped me by sending mechanics from his base ship to assist in salvaging my wreck. After Iceland, the Lindberghs made a tour of Europe here they are at Southampton with Captain Gordon Ollie and Major Brackley, and finally went homewards through Lisbon and Bathurst with many intermediate landings. The leg from Bathurst and Natal was almost as far as St. John's to Valencia. They did it in just under 16 hours, and thanks to the navigator's competent work with Sextant, made such an accurate landfall that when questioned recently, she could not recall that there was any perceptible error. On reaching Long Island on December the 19th, 1933, the Lindberghs had completed one of the longest and most difficult seaplane flights of over 30,000 miles ever undertaken, all without mishap of any kind. And it must be noted that on two of Lindbergh's greatest, flight, uh, greatest flights, Anne constituted 50% of the active air crew. Mainly because of the illness of a relative, Lindbergh became interested in the problem of making an artificial heart and met a French heart specialist, Dr. Alexis Carrel of the Rockefeller Institute, who had won a Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine. Under Carrel's guidance, Lindbergh started to design and have made a perfusion pump, which, unlike all previous attempts, would have immunity from infection. After several failures over four years, Lindbergh evolved a pump which began to work in the summer of 1935. Life for Charles and Anne was disastrously affected by publicity over the winding up of the Hauptmann case, and there were even threats of kidnapping John. This was the last straw, and decided them on December the 21st, 1935, to make a secret departure by freighter for England. After the first news of their arrival, the Lindberghs discovered to their delight when they moved into Long Barn near Sevenoaks that they were left in peace by the press. They were welcomed at all levels of society, from the local postmistress to Buckingham Palace, 
and at one ball, because he was a non-dancer, Lindbergh enjoyed sitting out a dance with the Queen. A less innocent invitation, which had been engineered by Major Truman Smith, the air attaché, for the benefit of intelligence, arrived via the Berlin Embassy from Goering, and the Lindberghs went to Germany, where they were entertained royally and shown aircraft factories, research centers, and air bases, so as to give a terrific impression of military might. At home, Lindbergh ordered a special two-seater touring monoplane called a Mohawk to be built by Miles at Reading. Of its construction, F.G. Miles wrote, Lindbergh was the perfect person to work for. He knew what he wanted and just how possible it was to meet his wishes. He knew as well as I did the sort of compromise that one has to accept when designing and making an aeroplane. In the Mohawk, Lindbergh took Anne, who was expecting another infant, to India and back in 1937, as she described so graphically in part in The Steep Ascent. On their return, she duly presented Charles with their third son, Land. After a visit to Carell in his island home of St. Gildas on the north coast of Brittany, Lindbergh decided to move to the nearby island of Iliac in June 1938 so they could experiment together. In Europe, Lindbergh was given ready access to the military aviation facilities of Britain, France, Czechoslovakia, and even Russia, as well as Germany, which latter impressed him so much he thought she could swamp all the others put together. At a Berlin dinner, which Lindbergh knew was being given by the ambassador, said he could meet Goering in order to seek better relationships between the U.S. and Germany and ask for Jews to be allowed to emigrate to America. The Reichsmarschall suddenly presented Lindbergh with a cross of the Order of the German Eagle with star, which he couldn't refuse, but never wore. Also in 1938, Lindbergh had a meeting at the Air Ministry with the Director of Plans, Group Captain John Slesser, who wrote in the Central Blue, In general, his attitude struck us as being entirely sympathetic to the British, so much so that one occasionally forgot that one was not speaking to an Englishman. He has an enormous admiration for the Germans, though he says, of course, there is much in their policy and methods which he cannot forgive. Recollecting that interview today, Sir John Slesser writes, He was a delightfully simple and honest man, I thought, but was not politically well versed in the tortuous methods of the Nazis. I would guess that he was properly sucked in by people like Goering. Returned to New York in April 1939, Lindbergh, as a colonel in the Reserve Air Corps, was bent on furthering the rearmament of his country. But he also believed it was his patriotic duty to keep his country out of the war, just as his father, when a congressman, had done in 1914. On the outbreak of war in 1939, Lindbergh saw Fran Britain and France as allies who had failed to stop Germany when they could have done, and then failed miserably to arm themselves declaring war on Germany in honor of their treaty obligation to Poland, whose rape they were utterly powerless to prevent. Then, finding themselves in a mess, Britain and France were appealing to Uncle Sam to pull them out of it. Lindbergh joined an isolationist group called America First, and due to the mystique of his name, achieved such a following as to seriously embarrass the president, thereby causing great bitterness among his own countrymen spoke out against Lend-Lease and made a speech in New York on April the 23rd, 1941, in which he affirmed that America's duty was to stay outside the conflict and negotiate a peace which would save the world's civilization. Ending up, it is now obvious that England is losing the war, because nobody had told him that some chicken had some neck. Two days later, at a press conference at the White House, the president almost accused Lindbergh of treachery.
and deeply hurt, he resigned his commission. When the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor precipitated America into the war on December the 7th, 1941, Lindbergh still believed that America should have stayed out and that the Japanese onslaught had been provoked by the United States being committed to helping the British and French with arms. Lindbergh's inexperience and artlessness in politics led to widespread misunderstanding of his motives. Far from being pro-Nazi or anti-Semitic, his whole philosophy was based on a pro-American patriotism pursued to the point of fanaticism. Now he immediately saw that his patriotic duty was to serve his country right or wrong without reservation. He therefore offered his services to the Air Corps and was turned down flat, but instead joined his friend Henry Ford as consultant and test pilot in starting a Liberator factory at Willow Run. He also held a consultancy with United Aircraft, makers of the Vought Corsair fighter bomber, which was used extensively by the Navy in the Pacific. He persuaded the company that it was not sufficient for him to test fly the airplane under artificial conditions, but must try it out in combat and was therefore equipped with naval uniform, bearing no badges of rank, and designated a civilian technician. In this guise, and armed with a waterproof flashlight and pocket New Testament, he flew into Hawaii on April 26, 1944, and immediately went off for gunnery practice. He started operational flying against Rabaul on May the 21st, and when a general pointed out that if he fell into Jap hands, he'd be executed as a civilian, as a civilian, he replied, So what? I'd be chopped off anyway, so there's no difference. He flew in 50 combat sorties, and although at the age of 42, thrilled at the dangers of diving low, sometimes in a Corsair, sometimes in a Lightning, to shoot up ground targets, he couldn't help worrying whether some might contain innocent women and children instead of the intended Japanese soldiers. In one dogfight, he shot down a zero, which nearly rammed him head on. And in another, he was only saved from being shot down by the timely intervention of a wingman. Lindbergh taught the squadrons how to handle the engines of their lightning so as to improve fuel consumption. On his arrival, they only dared operate to a range of 570 miles. But using his techniques, were able to boost this safely up to 700 miles. The standard Corsair could only carry 2,000-pound bombs, one under each wing. But at Roy Island, Lindbergh had a special carrier made capable of holding a 2,000-pound pounder in the central position, thereby doubling the bomb load. With this, he scored a direct hit on the Japanese main naval gun position and completely demolished it. In May 1945, he joined a naval technical mission to study development of jet aircraft and missiles in Germany. In Munich, he remarked that the British seemed to be everywhere all intent on sending every technical specimen back to England. On his return to truly civilian life, Lindbergh found his old friends just the same, though among certain politicians, bitterness remained. His great colleague Carrel had been condemned as a collaborator on entirely specious evidence and died. Pan American Airways and his old friend Juan Tripp welcomed Lindbergh back once more as a consultant, using him for special projects and investigations for future development. In 1953, he published The Spirit of St. Louis, to which I am greatly indebted, which was a very detailed and well-written account of his New York-Paris flight and was hailed as a great epic. 
Lindberg served on Dr. von Neumann's committee to advise the Secretary of Defense on deployment and development of long-range ballistic missiles and also inspected Air Force facilities throughout the world as special consultant to the Secretary of the Air Force. In recognition of this work, President Eisenhower appointed him a Brigadier General in 954. In 961, when I sought Lindbergh's help in my history of polar aviation, I asked him his correct rank, and he said he preferred no title, because I feel that military titles are for military life. It is difficult for civilians to keep track of them, and they tend to stiffen relationships and conversations. He was sometimes slow to answer my queries through his traveling so much, writing sometimes from Connecticut, sometimes with Shelley in Switzerland, or from North Africa or the Philippines, and he always found so much mail awaiting his return. He helped a great deal and did me the honor of writing a foreword. In 962, when I had flown up to the U.S. base of Thule in aid of the book, Charles invited me to stay with him and Anne at Darien. He was secretive about his work, both for Pan American and the Department of Defense, but did mention that he had recently been to see the mock-up of the very advanced B-70 supersonic bomber and asked if I knew that it was called the Saviour. I replied that I had never heard the name, and he rejoined that everyone who went into the hangar for the first time exclaimed, Jesus Christ! In 963, the BBC were preparing a documentary film on ocean flying, and since they had heard that I knew Lindbergh, they asked if I could persuade him to participate. And because the film was, I understood, to be serious history, it seemed worth a try. Back came the answer, I have never appeared on television and intend never to. As far as press and radio publicity is concerned, I've had enough to last a lifetime and several reincarnations. Any up-to-date publicity is highly disadvantageous to the type of life I want to lead. If BBC is going to do any historical film that touches on any of my activities, I don't know anyone I would rather have cover my part than yourself. Needless to say, I was highly flattered by the trust thus placed in me, but rudely shattered when, on November the 1st, I saw the result of the film called Trailblazers. Lindbergh's marathon flight to Paris was well done, but unfortunately, the producer thought it necessary to include details of the kidnapping up to the execution of Hauptmann. Then the film showed Goering entertaining Lindbergh and impressing him with German military might, and finished him off with a speech saying that Britain was obviously losing the war. There was nothing about his work at Fords or combat flying in the Pacific, and immediately after that speech, I was brought on in a way which suggested, to some at least, that I shared his political views. Having asked Lindbergh to participate in this film, I naturally wrote to explain what had happened, and he replied, I wouldn't worry at all about the TV showing of Trailblazers if I were you. My experience has been that the press, and this pretty much includes television and radio, confuses and cheapens almost everything it touches. This is the main reason why I discontinued all press contacts many years ago. If you worry about the responsibility of the press, you will do an awful lot of worrying. Indeed, the press had treated him extremely badly. He couldn't forget the time they broke into the mortuary to photograph his baby's body. But having developed a phobia for any form of publicity, Lindbergh had never come to terms or seriously attempted to come to terms with them, and by so doing merely provoked their desire to intrude and invent. 
When I met Charles in New York in 1967 and was showing him the photographs of my recent trip to the geographical and geomagnetic South Poles, including penguins, he told me how interested he had become in the preservation of wildlife since the safari he had made in 1964 and intended to spend the greater proportion of his time on it in future. One of the subjects he was keen on preserving was the blue whale, the largest mammal on earth, for whose depletion I had to apologize as having played a part when in charge of aircraft on the whaler Belena, which in the 1946-47 Antarctic season accounted for 2,135 whales. Our only excuse was that it was in aid of starving Europe, and Mr. Strachey said that the oil from ground nuts would take over, even if we finished off the poor old whale. This was precisely the sort of imbalance of nature which Lindbergh was seeking to prevent by international agreement. Other wildlife in which Lindbergh was particularly interested, and for which he worked in conjunction with the World Wildlife Fund, were the Javan bison in Indonesia and the Tamara buffalo and monkey-eating eagle in the Philippines, where he succeeded in getting the government to bring in protective legislation in 1968. He said, I do not think there is anything more important than conservation, with the exception of human survival and the two are so closely interlaced that it is hard to separate one from the other. When Lindbergh was dying of cancer of the blood, he has discharged himself from hospital in New York against the advice of his doctors, and flew to his home in Maui, where he could spend his last days out of reach of television and the ballyhoo of publicity. He wasn't afraid to die, but it irked him that whereas on the many occasions when he had been face to face with death in the air, he'd always had something to do, now he just had to lie and wait. He therefore proceeded to arrange every detail of his funeral service and burial with the same meticulous care that he would take preparing for one of his long flights. He laid out the specifications for his handmade coffin and the digging and stone construction of the grave, for which he chose an inscription from the 139th Psalm. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. He also checked over the prayers and Bible verses Anne had allocated for his service. In discussing suitable hymns, Anne proposed one which he thought would be appropriate, and sang it to Charles, who shook his head and said, "'Twas no good. But, replied Anne, the music is by Bach, and you cannot do better than that. The music's all right, said Charles, but the words are corny. Well, what shall we do? asked Anne, rather puzzled by the impasse. Let's just have high wine hymns, said Charles, Anybody, and nobody will know what they mean. How should one sum up the complex character of a man who did so much more than make a single flight which marked an epoch in aviation history? Honest, naturally modest, sincere, and a devoted family man of unshakable faith, he had both the solidity of the Swedish tradition and a young American's fervent patriotism, which he was prepared to pursue at any cost. Here's a photograph of the wedding in Montana in 1968 of Reeve, the youngest Lindbergh daughter to Richard Brown. A senior member of the family are Charles and Anne, Land and his wife Susan, John and his wife Barbara, while in front is another important member of the family, the eldest daughter, Anne Fady, who is honoring us with her presence here tonight, and happily her husband, who is not visible in the photograph because he took it, is here too. The only other omission is the younger son, Scott, 
whose scientific researches on fifty monkeys near Périgueux compelled him to be absent. But here he is. So we had the father rescuing the monkey-eating eagle while son Scott was rescuing the monkeys. From farming and engineering, Lindbergh had flown with distinction in almost every form of the art, from barnstorming to airline pioneering. His other interests had included archaeology, medical science, rocketry and space travel, and the pre preservation of wildlife. But that 1927 marathon from New York to Paris will always stand out as one of the most remarkable flights of all time, and the courage, endurance, and ability of the solo pilot Charles Lindbergh will light his name like a torch through the corridors of history. Mr. President, sir, madam, minister, ladies and gentlemen, I think, as the saying goes, all us working people have thoroughly enjoyed that, and thank you very much, John, for a memorable memorial lecture. We've just heard, I think, a fascinating account, splendidly delivered, a worthy tribute to a remarkable man. And certainly we all know that the name of Charles Lindbergh will live in the halls of aviation fame as long as they exist. And I'm sure that all of us here will join in thanking John for the telling of such a fine story, so well presented about so historic a figure. We've learned about the flight. We've learned about the man, which is almost the next best thing for meeting him. And we've enjoyed those excellent photographs and that fascinating bit of film. And now it's all part of aviation history, the history of one of the most remarkable people, of all the remarkable people in aviation, and some of those extraordinary events in a history which is studied with achievements. Now, I think that John Grierson's lecture has brilliantly made clear the unusual and individualistic nature of the Lindbergh personality a mixture of caution and rashness, of carefully weighed assessments, and of calculated risks. You know, I often feel, Mr. President, that um, on the eve of his great flight, he would have endorsed in, I suppose, a, a suitably amended aeronautical variant that famous prayer of St. Augustine of about 1,500 years ago. O oh Lord, give me chastity and give me self-restraint, but O oh Lord said, no, Lee Meadow, do not give them yet. <laughs> the fact is that uh, when we look back on those great pioneering days, which John has recalled to us this evening, and the range of the, all over those 72 years history of heavier-than-air flying, I think we can see that there have been just a very small number of really outstanding flights, which might be called epics, or I suppose in the uh, modest language of the modern publicity, super-colossal. And without starting a controversy, which we'd all like to join in, of course, of suggesting what the short list of those epics might be, I think there's no doubt that Charles Lindbergh's solo flight from New York to Paris just 48 years ago this evening, as Mr. President, you've reminded us, 
will always be seen not only as a remarkable achievement, but also as one of those things which just occasionally, you know, are done in the right way by the right man at the right moment, and so they change the whole course of events. And Lindbergh's flight in May of 1927, I think, did just that. It fired public imagination, it put aviation on the map, and as our old dear old friend Brab, Lord Brabazon used to say, it did it in a very remarkable way. And Brab used to always emphasize that. In fact, from then on, aviation became respectable. It was respectable on both sides of the Atlantic. And in a strange way, from then on, the urge behind both air transport and military aviation gathered a certain sort of momentum that they hadn't had up till that time. And really, I think that we need today something of that Lindbergh spark again to fire aviation back on the course which uh, he set, which it followed almost without interruption up to about five or six years ago. And I think we all this evening agree that we've listened to a fine tribute to Charles Lindbergh from his old friend John Grierson, who himself, as the President has remarked, is a distinguished long-range flyer in the Lindbergh tradition, as well as a splendid analytical test pilot. Now, through this Lindbergh Memorial Lecture, which we've so much enjoyed, it is, I think, Mr. President, appropriate that we of the Royal Aeronautical Society and the Guild of Air Pilots and the Royal Aero Club should do honor to the memory of Charles Lindbergh on this, the first anniversary of uh, the flight after his death in 26th of August last year. And I think it's especially appropriate occasion because 48 years ago, uh, one week later than we are now, in association with the Royal Aero Club, the SBAC, and the Air League, this society gave a joint dinner to Charles Lindbergh at the Savoy in those rather more opulent days. And I managed to find a menu of it, which I won't read out because it, it uh, makes one's mouth water. And incidentally, it was one pound a head, including wine. <laughs> now, that dinner was chaired by Christopher Thompson, Lord Thompson of Cardington, who, who died later in the R101, who was then chairman of the Royal Aero Club. And he remarked, I think appropriately, in his speech to Lindbergh, that unlike Byron, who awoke to find himself famous, Lindbergh had kept himself, with some difficulty, awake for 60 hours, and so made himself famous. But, he said also, and this was only a week after the flight, and very prophetic, the perils of the Atlantic are potentially less dangerous than the perils of publicity, and how right he was. And he remarked also a thing which struck everyone at that time, and I think strikes us equally today, that the dogged determination of Charles Lindbergh was well illustrated by the fact that he'd been flying for 11 hours out of New York before the Atlantic part of the flight from St. John's actually began. 11 hours in the air before he started flying the Atlantic. Now, Mr. President, in thanking John Grierson for his Lindbergh epic this evening, there are, I think, just three points to make. The first, very briefly, one word more about the man. Secondly, another brief word about the aeroplane. And thirdly, a third brief word about our lecturer. 
Now, John Grierson has shown us the man, Charles Lindbergh, as a brave and a complex character, and at the same time, symbol of those curious and now nostalgic times called the Roaring Twenties, when after the war, aviation was just spreading hesitant wings. And by the time that he embarked on his Atlantic flight, he got only 2,000 flying hours under his belt, which seems very small nowadays, but was a lot in those days. And he'd got one world's record also, as John Gerson has remarked. He'd saved his life four times by parachute. And no one else had done that up to that time. It tells quite a tale, I think, of the man, of the type of flying he'd done, including with the night mails in winter, and of those early parachutes, which were extraordinarily, surprisingly reliable. Now, I once spoke to Charles Lindbergh about this, actually at the uh, launch of Apollo 11, and he remarked to me that though he was too late for the First World War, at least he'd written off more DH-4s than had most of the German aces. <laughs> and he was very modest about it. And that thing about Lindbergh, both before and after he'd flown into fame and into the hullabaloo of publicity, which he so much detested, was that he was not only genuinely modest, but essentially an inwards-looking man who preferred to think out and to analyze things to himself and then go his own way regardless of the outside effect. And in John Grierson's account of him, we see that coming through time and again. In 1927, he considered the Atlantic ought to be flown because it was an achievement worth doing in his particular line of business. Just that, nothing else. It just ought to be flown because it was the right sort of thing to do. And in the event, as John Grierson has shown us, the outside effect at that particular moment of time far exceeded even the feat of sitting for 33 and a half hours in a light aeroplane, pointing it in the right direction, keeping awake, hoping the engine wouldn't fail, and trusting that the Atlantic weather wouldn't become impossible. Because flying the Atlantic in those days was what was described as one of those temptations which required great strength and courage to yield to. And he had both of those. But I think we should also remind ourselves that when Lindbergh is thought about these days, so often he's thought as the first man across. And as John mentioned, there had been others before. In fact, he was the 104th man to fly the Atlantic after Commander Reed of the United States and his five companions in the NC-4 flying boat by way of the Azores in 1919, and then Alcock and Brown direct from Newfoundland to Ireland, followed quickly by the double crossing of the Atlantic by the R-34, and after that, in 1924, Hugo Eckner delivering the Zeppelin LZ-126, which later became the ZR-3, or ZR-3, I should say, in, in Anglo-American, the Los Angeles, and then came Lindbergh, the 104th man. But he was the first man to fly solo, the first man to fly direct from New York to a European capital, the first to succeed after the much-publicized failure of Nungesser and Collie, the Frenchman, and most of all, he was the right man at the right moment. And so, as John has said, his flight sparked off a new era in aviation, and that's one of the things, I think, that we're celebrating this evening. And it's, uh, I think it's worth underlining as well one of the points which John Grierson made. 
And that's the remarkable feat of navigation which uh, Lindbergh achieved. Earlier, in the earlier Atlantic flights, two of the Navy Curtis flying boats, which had set off from Newfoundland in 1919, completely missed the Azores by almost 200 miles and had to come down in the sea. Fortunately, as flying boats, they survived. And then Hawker and Mackenzie Greve uh, were about 150 miles out when they had to ditch in the Atlantic. But Lindbergh was almost spot on all the way across on his great circle course over St. John's, over Valencia Bay, over Start Point in Devon, and to Paris. And the distance he actually flew was only 10 miles longer than the great circle course. And thanks to John Bagley of the RAE, the exact distance has now been calculated and was able to be quoted by John for the very first time, thanks to the wonders of modern computers. 3,613.85 miles great circle, and he actually flew 3,624.13 miles, just 10.28 miles longer than the great circle. At least that's what Farnborough says. I'm sure it's right. <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen, it's all history. And the odd thing is how short is public me memory. I fear that uh, this epic flight isn't remembered as we'd all like it to be, but he did start a trail which has led to the everyday fact of comfortable and reliable transatlantic travel all in the day's work today. And hence the importance of this lecture, lest we forget. There was first the man, and then the aeroplane, and the monoplane in the days of the biplane. And though it was a single-seater, it's interesting to recall that sometimes Lindbergh pressed it into service to carry passengers, one passenger at a time. And Henry Ford, that great chap, had his first flight in the spirit of St. Louis, crammed alongside Lindbergh in the narrow cockpit, and flying from Dearborn in August 1927, and so did Harry Guggenheim, who was very well known to this society in earlier days. And we remember, of course, that Lindbergh always referred himself and his round monoplane as we. It was, in fact, a team. A little aeroplane, totally blind forwards, carrying more than its own weight of fuel, and doing it only on 220 horsepower, really a light aeroplane in today's terms. But I've always felt, Mr. President, that the best commentary on Lindbergh's skill came quite unexpectedly many years later. Uh, a few years ago now, my son Charles, uh, yet another Charles, Mr. President, uh, flew the Atlantic in another ancient aeroplane, a DH Dragonfly, and like our lecturer by way of Greenland. And to cut a long story short, he and David Trefgarn eventually arrived with this Dragonfly in Santa Ana in California, where Paul Mance, who had an aviation museum, was housing a faithfully built replica of the Spirit of St. Louis for the James Stewart film of 1927, 1957. Anyway, the replica was standing out there on the apron, and Charles asked to fly it. And Paul Mance said, help yourself. So he did. Well, he flew it around for a bit, and then he taxied it in. And Paul Mance and Frank Tolman, his, his co museum owner there, an enthusiastic ancient aviator, asked him, and Charles thought a little anxiously, what was his opinion on this flying replica of that great airplane? Well, Charles said, I don't really know how to say this, and I don't want to seem rude, 
but it really is an absolute heap. <laughs> Completely unstable, controls seem wholly uncoordinated, the ailerons are enormously heavy, especially at anything over 100 miles an hour, the elevator's so light that it keeps bucking fore and aft, and the rudder's totally ineffective. And you can't see where you're going, the engine vibrates like mad, it's got no uh, shock-absorbing mountings, and hardly any instruments either. Well, said uh, Paul Mans, we know about the instruments and the lack of view, but I must say for the rest, you know, you check exactly what we've been feeling as well. The airplane was built from the original drawings, and we thought we'd got it right. But as you say, it's the hell of a thing. It's absolutely hideous to fly. Lindbergh couldn't have got it across the Atlantic like that. I don't know where we've gone wrong. The only thing to be said is that at least it looks right. Well, now, the, the sequel to this story is quite interesting, I think, Mr. President, because a short while later, Lindbergh himself came down to Santa Ana, and he too, seeing this beautiful replica, asked to fly for old time's sake. And, of course, they couldn't put him off, or they didn't really want to, him to see what it was like after they'd had a go. Anyway, he did fly it around. He stayed up for over an hour. And when he landed, he turned to Paul Mance and he said, you know, I'd forgotten just how nice that little airplane was. <laughs> <laughs> and he went on, you got it exactly right. Not quite up to modern standards, of course, but it flies just like the old spirit did. It really takes me back. Thank you very much indeed. Well, so the fight really was a feat, you know, because uh, there was much more in it than some people realize. And it shows, of course, how our handling standards have changed over the years, as anyone who flies a tiger moth today understands. Well, now, Mr. President, may I, last of all, pay a renewed tribute to our lecturer this evening, John Griss himself a great name in aviation, and one of those hardy band of long-distance pioneers. Like Lindbergh's flight, the modern generation has forgotten, I fear, some of those other remarkable flights which laid the foundations of modern air transport. And as you've said, Mr. President, as a very young man in the RAF, John Grayson flew his third-hand moth, Rouge et Noir, because it was painted for some extraordinary reason, black on one side and red on the other, I think to show which way it was going, in fact, <laughs> from India to England in a record four and a half days in 1931, which wouldn't be bad going in a light airplane today. And then in 1932, he flew that same moth to Moscow en route to the legendary Samarkand. And with typical enterprise, because the Russians wouldn't give him a visa, I understand that he telegraphed George Bernard Shaw, who was a bit of a buddy of the Russians in those days, and all the doors opened instantly from a, a letter from George Bernard Shaw, and he flew to Astrakhan, where I suppose he bought a coat I'd seen him wearing, and then to Tashkent and back, and it was a remarkable effort, especially coming back. And then he put that moth on floats and fitted that Marconi DF to it and set off the United States by way of Scarpa Flow and the Faroes and Iceland and Greenland, and as he's described to us, he met Lindbergh in Iceland, going the other way in that Lockheed Sirius, on that survey flight, which led to the Pan-American flying boats across the Atlantic uh, a little later in 
in company with Imperial Airways, and how nice it is to see Jack Kelly Rogers with us this evening, who was right involved in the middle of all those survey flights with the old Empire flying boats alongside Pan American's efforts. Then John, as he's described, unfortunately turned his moth over at uh, Reykjavik, and when he came back, he, uh, he acquired a new fox moth on floats, and then 41 years ago, he doesn't look as if he did it all that long ago, he flew from England to Ottawa and then to New York, first time round that way, after very many adventures through Greenland and Baffin Island. And then later on, as the President has reminded us, he completed another distinguished career as one of the test pilots of the first British, and therefore very nearly the very first, jet fighters, and wrote a very fine book about it. Well, Mr. President, Madam, ladies and gentlemen, this evening we've been privileged to hear, I think, a historic lecture about a historic flight nearly half a century ago now, and one wonders what will happen in the next half century. But this flight was one of the landmarks or milestones in aviation. And we've also had a magnificent portrait of a man and a great man at that. An immense amount of research has gone into this lecture. It's a link with those great days of yore and a link with that cheerful dinner which this society with the Royal Aero Club and the Air League and the SBAC gave to Charles Lindbergh 48 years ago under Lord Thompson's chairmanship. And I like to think that on the centenary of the flight in 2027, this lecture and that dinner might be digested all over again, at least rather a more up-to-date dinner, though what it will cost then, goodness knows. So, Mr. President, may I, on behalf of all of us here, thank again John Grierson for this magnificent evening, this most enjoyable lecture, and ask everyone here, all us working people, as the saying goes, to show our appreciation of this memorable memorial lecture in the usual way. Thank you indeed, Sir Peter Maysfield. After that, once we propose, go to thanks. There's no, nothing more really that I can say to add, except on behalf of myself, John, and indeed on behalf of the members of the Council Society, to add my thanks and our thanks to the President.